You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. The Asiatic wild ass, a species a lot of people don't know about, and it, it, it warms my heart that there are people out there fighting. What can they teach us? And as far as finding water, too, when it's scarce, researchers don't fully know how they do that, um, but it probably has something to do with smell. All equids, onagers, uh, just like their horse cousin, have fabulous Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Anytime we cover a species in Mongolia, Angie, and today's a a very special podcast and a a species near and dear to Angie and I's heart, uh, the equids. But before we get going... Uh, my late brother, uh, Sean Mortensen, and, and please Google his name if you're listening uh, after the podcast, S-H-A-W-N-M-O-R-T-E-N-S-E-N. One of my big inspirations of my life, my, my elder brother, and he passed away about 14 years ago. And I remember uh, meeting him in New York City of all places when I was visiting friends uh, back many years ago. And he said, Chris, I'm going to Mongolia. And I was like, what? Like out of all the places my brother has traveled and done, he was doing uh, a lot of photo shoots, videos. He he was working closely with Nike at the time. They were sending him all over Europe, and uh, he he was a you know pretty famous photographer back back in the day. And he just said, "I have a big draw to Mongolia, and and why? That's a whole different podcast for another day." But I, it sticks with me, Angie, that he had this love for the cultures and the peoples of Mongolia. And so today when we talk about the Asiatic wild ass, which is not just to Mongolia, you go all the way across Asia to Persia, right? And tell their story. It does remind me of my late brother and all the phenomenal photos he took of the horse peoples there. So just to open up this episode, you know, I want to dedicate it to him. Uh, but as we tell this story of this endangered equid, uh, you know, just imagine the the plains, like you know, the plains of Mongolia, the Gobi Desert, and then going to Persia, right? Like there, there's a lot going on there. Oh yes, Chris, the Onager has a fascinating story that pretty much 
tells it without you and I, because I was hooked the minute I started really diving in deep, learning about their history. And since the 1800s, this poor animal's range has been reduced to small protected pockets and areas throughout all of Asia. Onagers, and we'll talk about the four different subspecies. There used to be five, one's already extinct, but the remaining four today are considered by the IUCN as threatened. We break it down into the subspecies, like the Persian onager, for example, is only found in two or three populations in Iran. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's localized there when it used to cover this vast, vast wilderness, tough terrain, right? That's the other thing I know we're going to have a good time talking about today is all the, all the adaptations that's made the Asiatic wild ass and the the different subspecies of the onager survive and thrive. I mean, you mentioned the Gobi desert, right? I mean, it's just, it's such a, such an amazing creature. And I can see why your brother was drawn to Mongolia, it's definitely on my bucket list. Uh, Asia in general, I have yet to go. So somebody invite me. Let me let uh, Chris and I. We want to come. Yep. We want to see uh, see the creatures where you live. But we'll talk about it too. Is that the onager is a beautiful, beautiful equid. I mean, mm-hmm. I I'm not a film. Uh, I'm not a photographer, but I I just I'm just drawn to its colors and it, its shape and and yeah it's just it's a fascinating creature so you're gonna want to stick around today to fall in love with the onager and and learn why you should care about them and why we should save them. Uh, Chris will tell you a fascinating story about their evolution and how they're very similar to horses yet different. Yeah. I think it's fascinating because when you think of horses and donkeys, onagers or the Asiatic wild ass mm. has never been domesticated. They're too tough. No, they have no, too much yeah. of a attitude, if you will, is what I yeah. was reading. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, it'll be a fun podcast today for sure. Yeah, yeah. We did uh, Somali wild ass or the African wild ass is the originator of domestic donkeys and the Asiatic wild ass. Yeah, they're just too tough. And and you're going to find out today they're one of the, the most ancient equids out of all the lineages that we have today. And it, it just it, it it's such a fun species to talk about. And, and it's going to come across. So stay tuned for that. I mean, a lot on how they survive in this harsh climate. And it, 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 there is a lot to learn about that part of the world from Mongolia all the way across the steppe in the deserts and, and, and Afghanistan, Turkmenistan and, and Persia, Iran, harsh, harsh terrain that these animals thrive. First, I just want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Angie and I have been talking a lot about this lately, and I just sent sent money to Monarch Watch, and I wish I could have sent more. And it's something that Angie and I, I think we're going to start putting a lot more effort into our Patreon, where we give a little bit back to you as you give to us, but we do send that money off to these organizations that we cover. And so I felt like we need to highlight that more and and... We will mention it in the podcast and in our socials, but just giving Monarch Watch, and it's run out of the University of Kansas, and I and I sent it and told Angie, hey, I sent money uh, this week to them because we just covered the Monarch Butterfly, and their story is just so incredible. So just know that we're doing that, that we want our Patreon to help fund the podcast. So the bottom line is we're going to be highlighting this a little bit more. And then Angie and I are brainstorming on, on how me in New Zealand, her in Florida, uh, we can do more things with our, our Patreon where 
maybe not lives. I mean, we tried to do that and some people popped on. It was so great seeing like Melanie and other people, but maybe giving you special episodes. So that's in the works. Just, just keep your eye on, on, on that space. And for those that are supporting us, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Monarch Watch thanks you. All these organizations, the organizations we're going to talk about today, thank you. Every little bit helps. And instead of you just sending money to World Wildlife Fund, know that you send it to us and then we're in turn turning around and spreading it over four organizations a month. Yes. And I would like to add too, if you can't afford anything, we totally understand that, but you can always like subscribe, review and share uh, these episodes with everyone knows a fellow animal lover in their life. So please, please uh, pass these episodes along our, you can find us on all the social media channels, all creatures podcast uh, on Facebook, So that would be very, very helpful. Word of mouth is how we're going to grow organically at this point in time, because Chris and I still do this as just a passion project. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's been doing it for going on six years now. That's right. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Still trucking. I was saying it's better. It gets better every year. And I just want to give a quick shout out to Alaska Puffin, who gave us a five star review and wrote very kind words about our podcast how our podcast is way more than two thumbs up. So that's really appreciative uh, because the more reviews and subscriptions and five-star ratings we get, the more the algorithm will pick up on our podcast and recommend it to other people. And secondly, I want to give a quick shout out to Nesher, who reached out to us about the podcast last year, uh, being from the Middle East. She recommended several different organizations in the Middle East doing good work. And with the Persian onager only being found in Iran, um, I have some good leads of different groups I can reach out to. So thank you, Nesher. It definitely takes a village. Always feel free to send Chris and I an email or reach out to us on social media, as we just love to keep the conversation going and um, meet other people's connections as well. Bearded Vulture. I remember that was her recommendation and uh, I loved covering that. And Alaska Puffin, I put down Puffin. That's a good way to get uh, a species on our list. Go in <laughs> and put it in your name when you leave us an iTunes or Spotify review. And we're like, oh, okay. So now Puffin is on my list because that is a bird I, I wish I would have saw when I was visiting the UK uh, many years ago. And I hope to see one day, but Equids, Angie, going to the 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 onager, the Asiatic wild ass. What are we looking at? How do they differ from a horse, you know, or a donkey to an extent? Well, all equids in my eyes are created equal and equally yes. perfect and beautiful. Uh, but the onager is really striking. Uh, so most of us are familiar with what a donkey looks like, uh, whereas an onager is it's bigger. And especially the Persian onager, uh, we'll talk about each subspecies here shortly, but that's the biggest of all the subspecies. And because of their size and being a little bit taller, they just have more of a, a horse body, I suppose, than say the Somali wild ass. And I think it's their coloring that just makes me just smile from ear to ear mm-hmm. because the different subspecies of onagers are a little different in their color coat pattern, but in general, the onager is a reddish brown to tannish yellow in color, and they have a fantastic dark brown dorsal stripe that runs from their withers down the middle of their back to their tail. And it just is really striking because in that contrast to the tan body and then lighter under regions. So like their belly and their chest is even lighter in color. Like it's more of like a cream. 
So they just have this beautiful sandy thing going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you're a nerd like me that loves different coat patterns and colors and and animals that you look at, I highly recommend you Google a photo of an onager because they're just, they're just beautiful, beautiful creatures. And depending on which region they live in, in Asia, in the winter, the coat will grow much longer and it does turn a little bit more grayer in color. And then the white parts really of like the under region and the belly becomes really defined. So just any time of year, any subspecies, an onager is, is going to always have my eye and be stunning. They are. They are. They are beautiful. And I, you know, equids and, and horses and we owe yeah, them I'm so a, much. I'm a sucker for a dorsal stripe. I oh, mean, yeah. They're beautiful. They are really pretty. And those big ears and, you know, it's like going back to donkeys. They're so amazing. And size wise, they're probably like your, your medium sized donkey. If I had to put it what you would think of. You know, not quite as big as a horse because they they stand forty inches to fifty five inches at at the withers or their shoulders, so that's one to one point four meters tall. Uh, can weigh upwards of five hundred pounds or 250, 260 kilograms, and then their body length can be up to eight feet long. So, yeah, that that's pretty long. So they're yeah small. I mean, that's a pony. Uh, I'm looking horse. at a picture of a yeah. uh, full right now. So cute. Yeah, they are. They're they're adorable. They're adorable. Now, when Angie talked about their range in the beginning about how they, you know, you were talking all the way from the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. So in Southwest Asia or what we call the Middle East, all the way up into Eastern Europe, the Southern parts of Russia over into Mongolia and then and then as far south as India the western portions of India up through Pakistan Afghanistan you know and then over Kazakhstan Uzbekistan Turkmenistan yeah. all of those mm-hmm. this huge 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 range hot now, cold super hot yeah. super cold i mean they did it all these animals were highly successful until you know the last few hundred years the range has shrank and shrank and shrank where they're just in some pockets now, right? You said a little bit in Persia. Uh, there's pockets Very in India. Small. I mean, the populations of the Persian onager uh, are anywhere, the wild left in Iran are, are two to three populations totaling anywhere from 300 to 600. Uh, I got mm-hmm. different counts depending on what article I was looking at. Uh, a very low number. They are the yeah. most uh, critically endangered uh, onager subspecies. Yeah. yeah. There is now uh, when we do talk about subspecies and populations, the the ones in India, there's a few thousand. Again, we've been highlighting India in the past year. They have been doing some incredible, incredible conservation work. So uh, a part of the world I'm dying to get to, I want to get to India and see their wildlife, the Asiatic lion. Now they do have the, the Indian. The Asiatic cheetah. Yeah, the cheetah they reintroduced. So there, and then most of them are in Mongolia. You know, most of them there. So this is just an incredible creature, Angie, that it's not just because we love equids, but they're hardy, they're resilient, and they do a lot for the environment. Well, yes, Chris, as a large equid species, the onagers, whatever community they're living in, they're going to impact the vegetation big time. 
as far as which species they're grazing on and what they consume and in populations of weeds and grasses that they control and seed dispersal. So just a huge impact on the vegetation because they consume a lot of vegetation being strictly an herbivore. And we'll talk about that in nutrition. Uh, but they're also a prey item for some of our larger carnivores. And so that is an important ecosystem role. And that, even though it makes me sad to think about, it is an important ecosystem role where they live in, like you mentioned, the Asiatic lions and leopards and uh, and whatnot. So they, they have a very important role. Oh, yeah. And I, one of the papers I was reading, they talk about the ecosystem services. So they're dung piles, right? So that, that helps with seeds and help plant growth. This one I found interesting. I haven't come across this. And I know elephants do it. But the onagers, they will go to dry riverbeds and dig and dig and dig until they find water. And then they'll, they'll hit that, that underground waterbed that comes up and other wildlife will come and drink. So uh, ecosystem engineers. And then you also talk about the spiritual and cultural influence in that part of the world. You know, we talk about Mongolian and, and the horse peoples there and, and their culture and connection with horses and the wild asses and like you said even in in the hard hardy winter when they go and, and dig up vegetation and that helps other animals that come in and and eat some of the things left over so they are they are hugely important so this entire web like we've talked about this podcast for six years you start cutting branches off that tree or links in that web the whole ecosystem can collapse so Mongolia and China, where I'm going to focus a little bit today, is doing a lot to help their wildlife, including the onager. And I just saw this across my desk a couple of weeks ago. What I do is I always email me the article because I'm like, oh, I know we're doing onager soon. So I get some conservation news. And this was just an article published uh, talking about Mongolia dragged its wild horses back from extinction. Can it save the rest of its wildlife? Now, they're talking about the reintroduction of the Shavalsky or Przewalski's horse. The and pea horse. We, yeah, <laughs> the pea horse. <laughs> or, you know, the 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 tacky, as the Mongolians call it. Yes, I, I follow the tacky group on, um, on social media. Oh, it's uh, one of my favorite stories. Just the fact that they were down to 12, maybe 14 breeding animals around the world, not at the San Diego Zoo or the Berlin Zoo, but there was one in San Diego, one in Berlin, one in the Smithsonian, a couple of females here. Uh, and scientists in the 60s and 70s came together and said, hey, we need to save the species. And now we, we have almost 2,000 that have been reintroduced to Mongolia and parts of China. So they're back in their old native range. So it, it is a conservation success story and does talk a lot about how conservation works, right? It's not like, oh, we can't do anything. Yes, there's issues with such a low population. Yes, there's issues with genetic diversity. But as long as we keep fighting, we're going to save these species. And being that the onager or Asiatic wild ass is endangered. And been birds, around for a millennia. And I know you're, you're going to yeah. nerd out about that. Millions revolution. of years. Yeah, millions mm -hmm. of years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're old. They're really old. 
So the, what they're what they're basically talking about is yes, Mongolia has done a great job with Brzezowski's horse or Shavalsky's horse. They've been able to reintroduce them, but all these other species are in crisis. So right now in Mongolia, looking at the scientific literature, it's estimated sixty four thousand kulan or Asiatic wild asses in the Mongolian Gobi Desert. And that's about 80% of the, the population of Asiatic wild asses. Most of them are in this parts of Mongolia and China. There are some scientific papers highlighting this too. So what's going on in Mongolia is, hey, we've done great with the, the Przewalski's horse, Przewalski's horse, but we also need to work on our other wildlife. And they recognize it. So working with conservation organizations, Mongolia has realized, okay, we need to give resources and other things. Because after the the Iron Curtain, the end of Soviet Union, communism, Mongolia has had to redefine itself. It was under the, the Soviet Union's umbrella and there was a lot of chaos, a lot of factories, mass unemployment. And so the country collapsed in the 1990s. So you're looking 30 years ago. And so they said it was a free for all in the natural mm-hmm. environment. So they hunted to survive. I mean, they, they did. And sure. so, yeah, I mean, how do I say, don't go feed your family. We've talked about this in, in the bushmeat trade, things like that. Well, it's had a huge effect on wildlife, not just the onager, like red deer. They used to have like hundreds of thousands of red deer. And now there's 8,000 marmots, you know, which they hunt. There was 40 million down to 5 million. Saiga. We love our Saiga. I love the Saiga. Drops by 85%. Wild mountain sheep dropped by 75% because they were hunting all these animals to survive. So what Mongolia has done is in the late 90s going into 2000, so 20 years ago, is they're pledging to protect 30% of their territory as wildlife conservation areas, which is huge. That's huge. Can you imagine the U.S. doing that? I would love that, Chris. (laughs) There's no way. There's a third of the country. Wildlife refuge? No. No. So that's that's amazing. And uh, they want to do that within the next 10 years. And so far, it's about 21% of the country is protected they want to plant 1 billion trees by the end of this decade so by 2030 yes yes we need more of that yeah they're going after illegal hunting illegal um logging and so they they do have the will it's just finances and so that's where that's being highlighted is look we want to do this we just need help so again, like when you donate to us, we're going to turn around and donate it to organizations that are going out and helping. And, you know, the Onager, the Kulan in Mongolia, they are facing a lot of threats. But China has also recognized their importance is starting to pour some resources into there too. So the good news is, this species you probably never heard of before or, or kind of are aware, just know it, it is under the, the spotlight in these parts of the world where they live. Mongolia, my dear brother, who got to visit there, and I will follow in his footsteps one day. I will step foot in Mongolia before I die. That is one of my promises to myself and, and to Pip and to my family. We will go there. 
you know, my uncle, your uncle Sean, my brother, he went there. I'm going there and I will get there. But the good news is Mongolia is fighting for their wildlife. And so is China. China's doing a lot. It's not just pandas. They're doing a lot for their wildlife too. And and it's good news. It's good news, but we need to keep fighting. Well, exactly, Chris. And for the Persian onager, the most endangered onager subspecies, Iran is doing a lot as well. Um, The Persian onager population has declined about 28% over the last decade uh, in general, and the numbers are in this several hundred, and that's it, and these two or three populations with the largest being found in Kar Turan National Park within Iran. But I was looking through a lot of the um, scientific papers, and there's definitely researchers and groups coming out of uh, universities and uh, government agencies out of Iran that are looking at how they can best protect the onager within Iran. And a great paper just came out in 2021 um, by Mohammed Kushman and other colleagues worked on integrating spatial analysis. So that's past my pay grade for Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. but integrating that along with a questionnaire survey to better understand this human onager conflict in Southern Iran. And the really awesome result is that they found out that people do want to save them. Uh, and they just have to figure out how they can cohabitate with their crops and in which land is the most appropriate to conserve and should be conserved, uh, depending on the onager populations and their movement. So I'd love seeing that as actually in nature. And there was, there's other ones that I uh, don't mm-hmm. have time to mention them all. But uh, there's groups in the U.S., there's wonderful groups in Iran working on the Persian onager crisis. So that gave me me hope as well because I, I realized I wasn't the only one that think onagers are super cute and mm-hmm. worth saving. This amazing, amazing history uh, and resilience for where they live. So... So yeah, it's it it is something to be hopeful about, but we want to keep our focus on them and also vote with our dollars and work towards supporting organizations that have the onager on their radar. So we'll be talking about those at the end of the podcast. Yeah, there's a lot of good news, and and again, like I was just saying, this is a, this, the Asiatic wild ass, a species a lot of people don't know about, and it it, it warms my heart that there are people out there fighting and. And there is a lot they can teach us. I'm going to talk about after the break, once we get through evolution quickly, and I'm going to talk about the biggest equid ever to live. I don't know if Angie knows. We'll find out. But, you know, like, what are the big ears for? How do they survive in these harsh, harsh environments? It's it's tough. When you talk about desert and lack of water, which is something we all need, all animals need that. And, um, yeah, we're going to talk about that after the break. So stay tuned. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. 
Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. All right, welcome back. So, evolution... Hold on, time out, Chris. I... You, I have to just put my seatbelt on, yeah. enjoy yeah. the ride. I've got my popcorn. <laughs> I'm just going to be eating my popcorn while you yeah. do evolution. Because for those that are new to the podcast, yeah. uh, Chris is a huge evolution nerd. And yeah. he also is an equine specialist and has written books about mm-hmm. equine and donkeys mm-hmm. and has a mm-hmm. podcast just about horses. Yeah. He talks for, I think, an hour just about equid evolution. He had me at the edge. <laughs> you had me at the edge of my seat when I was yeah, listening yeah. to it, eating the popcorn. Yeah. So I know we don't have too much time. This is not yeah. just an onager evolution and equid evolution yeah. podcast. But I do have to give you a shout out. If people like this little teaser that you're going to do, they should check yeah. out you on your other podcast where you just yeah. go to town with all the nitty degree details uh, yeah, yeah. because you are amazing. So off you go. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Mad about horses at the origins of the horse. It, it is something I am passionate about. And I think it was when I wrote my book, you know, the handbook of horses and donkeys so many years ago in academia, that when I studied the evolution of the horse and equids, you know, the, the Asiatic wild ass, it, we know more about them because we owe them so much. We owe equids everything. And, and I argue today, we wouldn't have gone to the moon. We wouldn't have cell phones if it wasn't for horses because they changed our trajectory and our history. Uh, we were able to travel farther. We were able to plow fields. We were able to take things to market. We were able to industrialize on the backs of horses or on the shoulders of draft horses. So anyways, the, it is fascinating, the evolution about it, because it goes back 55 million years. It's incredible. E- yeah. Equids belong to the order Parasodactyla. So I would say this is Angie's favorite, the odd-toed ungulates. But the even-toed, she, she has a soft spot for too. I do love anything with hooves and horns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But when you talk about the equids, the zebras, you know, the wild asses, your horses, domestic horses, Shavalsky's horses. Tapers, okay, yeah, maybe. And then your rhinos, come on. Your rhinos, half, half your PhD dissertation was, was working I know. for rhinos. And, and honestly, I, I, I couldn't imagine my life without rubbing a rhino belly, giving him little <laughs> belly scratches as you would your uh, your your dog or your cat at home. Yeah. Although my cats don't like belly scratches. At least mine doesn't. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. yes, so no, rhinos yeah. are a household favorite. We love yeah. them and we lo- I love all the podcasts we do about them. Yeah. And hopefully I'll get to get more hands-on work uh, with them in the future. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, uh, family's equidae. So these are our, our our favorites. And then you have the cabaline and, and non-cabaline lineages. So your cabaline's your horses. There are no, quote unquote, wild horses left. There are feral horses that we call wild. All the wild stock of horses have been domesticated. And then you have the Shavalsky, Przewalski, P-horse. Non-cabalines are zebras, and this is our wild asses, and then our domestic donkeys. Genus is equus, so same as that. And then when you get into the subgenus, and I don't think I've ever done a subgenus, but this is where you get in the asinus or the asses. And you have the Asiatic wild asses and the African wild asses. Asiatic wild asses, really two species. 
you have the onager or kulon and the subspecies. And then you have the keong. Now, this is a quote-unquote Asiatic wild ass, but it's a completely different species. Genetics have shown that. It is the Tibetan wild ass. Okay, so they do live in Asia. They're actually doing okay. It's well, the, I do uh, want to cover them yeah. as well because yeah. Chris, a yeah. little sidebar before yeah. uh, we picked the species this last week, uh, we were debating should we do the onager or the kiang, mm. and there was yeah. this whole, I mean, super nerdy conversation if you were a fly <laughs> on the wall. <laughs> but uh, the onager went over, and I, yeah. I only with a caveat that we will cover the kiang because yes. I don't know anything about it. And part mm-hmm. of this passion mm-hmm. project is for me to have fun each week. Yeah, in Tibet. Like, I would just love to look at what's oh, going on in right. Tibet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We haven't really looked at a species up there uh, in a while. Because we, we did your favorites, your other favorites, that are up in the Himalayas. Tibetan, aren't they in Tibet? Takins! Yeah, Takins. okay. Takins, Takins. Yeah, different, so. yes. Different. Some, some, okay. some are. All right. So, the, the subspecies are Equus heminis. Uh, the subspecies, the Mongolian wild ass or the Kulon. They're Tur- Turkimian Kulon, the Persian Onager, Rigur, and then the Indian Wild Ass. So they are all different subspecies of the Asiatic Wild Ass. And we'll talk more about this when we get to conservation, but as a group, they're still near threatened. Yeah. So that's yeah. With all of them. And then individual populations. Endangered. Are, yes. And I think or, the, the last yeah. count was 28,000 for all of them, for all mm-hmm. four subspecies and all, and the different ranges and the pockets. So not many at all. I mean, no, no. not at all. No, and, and, then, and there's so many, so many challenges. Yeah. It's just like, you know, feral horses or feral donkeys that we domesticated and bred and changed their genetics and they get loose in the wild and then they go breed with these. Yeah, it, it's like, I remember Somali wild ass. I mean, there's so many... Uh, that's why I just, when we were doing research in them and I was just, I want to save the species. They're so beautiful. Oh, I love the wild donkeys and asses. Okay. <laughs> we'll sit here all day. Equine evolution. You can go check out the origins of the horse podcast. I'm mad about horses. Cause I really do dork out about it about an hour, an hour. So to go to Eohippus, you have this tiny medium sized dog, really like looking fox, animal. Like, yeah. Tiny without, the, four- without the bushy tail, but no. Yeah. And they creeping around in the forest on four toes in their front feet, three toes on their hind feet, browsers. They're eating leaves and nuts and berries. And bark. Yeah, to, you know, 50 million, 52 million, 53 million years later, we have large horses like the Shavalsky's horse or, you know, the ancestors' domestic horse, like the Asiatic wild ass, where they're single toed, which is their hooves. And they're grazers. So evolution drove that slowly over time, and we see why. All of this has happened in North America, by the way. A lot of people don't realize equids evolved and rhinos evolved in North America. Then they crossed over into Asia, eventually down into Africa, where you get the zebras and with the mountain zebras way down in South Africa. So it's it's an amazing story about how they got there. Specifically, the Asiatic wild ass. So, Equus evolved in North America. The land bridge over the Bering Sea crossed over millions of years ago. 
established itself. This is Equus, the original very first horse-like animal. Got a foothold in Asia and then radiates out. Radiates down into Africa to become all the zebras. Becomes the donkeys. So the Asian wild asses emerged about four to four and a half million years ago. So they're the oldest lineage from Equus that's still around. Then you get the Przewalski emerging out of that about 2 million years ago. Domestic horses over a million years ago. African wild asses a million years ago, a million and a half years ago. Zebras about a million years ago to 800,000 years ago. So you're looking, when you look at an Asiatic wild ass, you're looking at the oldest equid we know of on the planet. That's another reason to care. They're, they're, they're an ancient species. And once horses were domesticated about 5,500 years ago, we have changed what they looked like. We've changed their genetics, leading to the largest equid ever, Angie. First breed. What breed horse would you guess? Draft. Yeah. Okay. What specific breed? Ouch. Now, now you're just showing off. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I should ask this. Uh, um, Go through your draft breeds. Okay, draft horses are our biggest horses. Thank so you. You have, very you much have the. Uh, uh, it's not a Clydesdale. And I was say, I, always, I know there's one that gets bigger than them. What is it? It's uh, from England. Shire, I, Shire, yes, yeah, Shire. I, I, okay, okay. I live in the Shire in New Zealand. I, I, I live in near Hobbiton. Okay. Now, how Folks, tall do you keep think- in mind that I teach equine science classes, like nutrition, <laughs> behavior, reproduction, and animal behavior classes. So yeah, 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 yeah. that's why I listen to Chris's horse podcast each week, yeah. so I can learn, I can fill in all the, the gaps in my knowledge about uh, breeds and genetics and yeah. that kind of stuff. Well, okay, 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 okay. Shire horse, good. Thank How you. tall? At the shoulder. Mm-hmm. At the shoulder. Because we don't go to the head. We go to the shoulders. Yes. Um, t- we don't, and we measure in hands. Uh, uh, could, I I look, s- could I look over it? Do you think I could look over the shoulder of this big, big You're horse? You're six feet, two five. inches. Five. Oh, jeez. Um, six feet, five. Uh, yes, I think you could look over it. No. Oh. No. Not this <laughs> I horse. I was hoping, buddy. <laughs> no. No, this is, this is okay. Samson Shire Horse in the 1800s. Over seven feet tall or over 21 hands. So if you were on your tippy toes, you could see over it. If I was playing center for the LA Lakers or New York Knicks or whoever, (laughs) sure. But I didn't. I didn't grow that tall. Uh, Now let's talk about weight. You have a horse that's seven feet at the shoulder. And it's a meme. You see this picture. People don't believe it's real. It is real when you go online of Samson. The Shire Draft Horse. It is massive. I bet he was much... just the most gentlest guy ever. Oh, yeah. They're the best. Those draft, draft horses in general have just Seems... some... Gen... They're like gentle giants. They know. They are. Okay. How much did he weigh? Ooh. Um... <laughs> uh, 3,000 pounds. Yeah. Good. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. 3,300, <laughs> 1,500 <laughs> kilograms. <laughs> uh, yeah. Massive. I just took like the average and... Right. So you can use that in your class three. now. You, you I will. Start teaching again, I, I do. I usually always take a fun fact from your podcast and yeah. and uh, use it in class each day. Okay, there you go. Samson the Shire Horse. I love talking about him. Okay. 
Back to our average, normal-looking <laughs> equids, the Asiatic wild asses. Uh, surprising, you know, live 20 to 25 years in the wild. It, that's similar to wild or feral horses. Under human care, in the conservation parks that they're in, there's not many, they probably can live into their 30s. And your mare, you know, horses under human oh, care. Oh, scotch lives- time rose. Rosie, my heart horse. Uh, my heart still aches for her. Uh, she, yes, yeah, she was almost 36. Yeah, that's uh, a hell of a life. Mm-hmm. That's for a And now horse. I have Romeo, her son, and he is turning 25 on February 14th. Yeah. That's I remember insane. Romeo. The bar name Romeo. Back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. looking great uh, yeah. and he's feeling good. He's a good boy. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so they can, uh, depending on genetics and care and all of that, they can uh, definitely live for a while under human care a lot longer. Well, you have a great mommy like you. Yeah. They, they live yes. forever. Very spoiled. Very, very yeah. spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. But we'll take care of. So yeah, it's very, 20, 25 years in that harsh environment that they live in. The thing is, Asiac wild asses, now we we talked about quarter horses being one of the, th- the third fastest, yeah, the third fastest animal on earth at 55 miles per hour, 70 something kilometers per hour. Right, because the, si- side note is they technically are faster than thoroughbreds for the first quarter of a mile. Yes, quarter of a mile. Yeah. That's why they're called quarter horses. Quarter horses. The wildebeest was just a little bit faster. And then do you remember the fastest? No, no, no. Sorry. Wildebeest and quarter horses were the same. I definitely know the fastest. <laughs> Mammal. <laughs> Mammal. Idiot. Most everybody listening should. All right. So you know cheetahs. Who was the yes. second? Remember? North um, America. Oh. oh we're, we're, I, yeah. No, I don't want any charades. I know this. Uh, I do. I do know. It's spring... It's not a spring brock. It's a um Get close. North America. Yes, it's coming to me. It lives out west. Uh 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 pronghorn. Pronghorn yes. because it yes. evolved to because it was hunted by the North American cheetah many yeah. millennia ago yeah, when yeah, cheetah yeah, yeah, yeah. lived over here. We're there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. Okay. Yeah, so Asiac wild asses are are very fast and known for their agility. They can get up to forty to fifty miles per hour. Yeah, that's uh, huge. Yeah. I guess I, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that until I read that f- fun no. fact. Yeah, yeah, they're very, very fast. All right, and then the big thing I think with physiology, I mean, they are herbivore, hindgut fermenters. We've talked about that in other equid species. Is how do they survive in the heat, and why do they have big ears? I always ask that with donkeys, because horses, the 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 wild horses, the Shavalsky's horses. Their ears aren't as big. They're big compared to mine. You know, I have big ears for a human being, but not like donkey ears, right? Donkeys have these huge, huge, big ears. And yeah, it does help with hearing, especially as sound travels over the desert, you know, over the the low vibrations. They do use hearing quite a bit, so they have acute sense of hearing. But the other aspect of it is heat. So, you know, horses have to listen over the prairies and everything that they live on the grasslands. Donkeys, they their ears are a little bit longer because it helps them with heat. So that's given them an advantage to survive sure, in such harsh environments. Sure, when it's 120 degrees Fahrenheit, which oh, God. I apologize. I don't know what that is Celsius off the top of my head. But that's hot. I mean, that's yeah. really hot. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're those ears have helped them. Other things, their kidneys are specialized. We see this in other species where other they really, yeah, yeah, really concentrate that urine. So they reclaim a lot of water. They do get a lot of moisture out of the plants that they find and eat. And they're more, well, I guess we'll I jump ahead to behavior. You'll get there in a minute, but you know, more nocturnal during the heat of the day, less active. Uh, one of the things I saw that gives them an advantage against social behaviors and being in groups that gives them more defense. It's not burning as much energy, uh, running from predators and um, some other things that they do. So yeah, those big ears help dissipate the heat. It's got a lot of blood vessels in there. So the blood is shunted, you know, the more core, warmer blood is shunted to the extremities, any bit of breeze, a little bit of of that heat can be dissipate, dissipated and that helps them cool down a little bit. Well, then just on the flip side of that for the bitter cold, depending on the season and where they live uh, and it gets really cold in some of these desert regions, uh, they've adapted to grow a pretty dense, almost curly winter coat when needed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that obviously helps keep them warm. So just a really super flexible, adapted, well-adapted creature and yeah just incredible yeah and they you know they I, when you think of the shavalski's horse the grasslands of mongolia or asia you know china and, and parts of the steppe in russia you know a lot of grazing grass but out in those deserts there's not a lot of grass right so these wild asses are are hardy and we see it in donkeys we call donkeys easy keepers because they put weight on so easily they don't need to eat quite as much. Depends on the donkey, but quite as much as horses because they've evolved in these harsh environments. So yeah, they're going to eat some some scrub grass, whatever grass they can get. They might eat some fruit. They might eat some leaves. They do do some browsing a little bit, some seeds on certain plants, but they're kind of like generalist herbivore. I don't know. It's kind of the, the feeling I got when I looked at the nutrition. Definitely a generalist, uh, which I think is one of the re another superpower adaptation that they have to be able to live in all these different ecosystems, yeah. let alone very harsh, harsh ecosystems with not a huge abundant food source. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I mean, they're not picky and their digestive system handles it very well and is able to extract whatever nutrients are in these plants that they come across uh, and, and water too, mm -hmm. to help keep them healthy, hydrated, and living an amazing life, even yeah. in desert-like ecosystems. So yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing. And just to add to that too, in the winter time, depending on which region they live in, they will eat snow that acts as a substitute for water. They, when they are in more of a desert region, they you typically don't go more than like 20 kilometers from a water source uh, because they do need water. Uh, and Chris mentioned to the behavior where they'll dig for water too, uh, as needed. And of course, seek out more plants that have water in them as well. So just a really intelligent creature uh, that has the memory to know what plants are where and what water mm -hmm. source will has been here in the past. So maybe if I just dig for it. And as far as finding water, too, when it's scarce, researchers don't fully know how they do that, um, but it probably has something to do with smell. All equids, onagers, uh, just like their horse cousin, 
have fabulous sense of smell. I mean, just an incredible mm-hmm. sense of smell. I when we've talked about other species, other equids and uh, species, canine species mm-hmm. that um, have great senses of smell. I like to think of it as like a superpower, where these their smell receptors in their nose is just thousands and thousands times of what us humans have. And so they can smell things that us humans can't and and they can smell them from far away, especially on a windy day that we cannot smell. Uh, And I always liken it to like sitting on the opposite end of the house from my husband. If I could, you know, smell his cologne and say he's wearing this or, yeah, oh, he, yeah, oh, yeah. oh, he's in the bathroom right now. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm glad we can't smell that well. He spends a lot of time there, right? Uh, yeah. That's when in doubt, we don't know where dad is. That's usually where we can find, yeah. we can find John yeah. and the John. We love you, honey. I understand it's, uh, it's an important uh, place of meditation, but, but, but really, but, oh, or, or, or like I hear the doorbell ringing. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, that's my neighbor, Maggie. I mean, just, just incredible sense of smell. And so, uh, onagers have that and it definitely helps them survive these harsh, uh, harsh desert conditions and be so evolutionary successful throughout the years. So doing, digging into this, you know, I, I find their, their feeding behavior fascinating. What other equid like behaviors do they have? A lot. Okay. Because they are a cousin to the horse. Um, uh, mm-hmm. they're, the onager communication is extremely important because they are herd bound equid. You do see onagers living in groups, uh, typically mares in their foals and maybe one or two resident stallions, uh, depending on how big the population is. Um, and then you will see bachelor groups for younger stallions and older stallions that don't really fit in, in anywhere else. But in order to live in harmony with each other, this is why I love equid social species so much is they have to be able to talk to each other and let each other know how they're feeling and where they fit in in their societal herd and so we know they can't talk they definitely do have vocal communications but but even more critical are the subtle visual signals and flick of an ear, a twitch of a tail, uh, a slight of an eye, a pucker of a mm-hmm. lips, just mm-hmm. an incredible amount of social, subtle language and behaviors going on in horses in equid species, including onagers. It could be a whole podcast. Uh, so if you want to know more about equid behavior, I recommend you listen to Chris's other podcast all about horse behavior because it's going to be very similar. And so, Chris, which pot, which which episode was that where you talked about all horse behavior, but it, it relates to yeah. onagers? Yeah, a day in the life of the horse. And that it part of that episode was uh, so mad about horses. And I'll, I'll link this in the show notes so you can. If you, if you want to learn more, cause uh, it just, we're so passionate about it. It is. But, well, it's so, I mean, it's so fascinating. Yeah. It's, and there's obviously, like I said, a lot of, um, uh, a lot overlap. of overlap. Well, yeah, there's a ton of overlap yeah. from yeah. their vocal to their tactile, to their chemical communication of just how, how they're interacting with one another. Oh well, yeah. And then there's another episode on how horses communicate. So they yes. can listen that much. <laughs> there you go. Listen. Exactly. And, and they're about 40 minutes. I, I don't do too much into it, but I just want to, Real quick, my behavior, my understanding of behavior, my research into behavior is all because of Angie sitting in my office years ago saying, we need to do this. And she inspired me that in turn started this podcast 
in turn, here we are six years later speaking to tens of thousands of people around the globe every week. Yeah. It's so it's, Angie, it's thank you. It's been a that. wild ride. Yeah. Yes. No, yeah, I remember yeah, yeah, yeah. you were like, why are we going to go look at these and take uh, take Smally, data on them? Eat? Ass, yeah. Don't they just eat grass all day? Oh, and God, I was like, that's all they do. <laughs> And I was like, yes, but just wait until they don't. Yeah. And then it gets real yeah. magical. And the, and the subtleties of it too, right? And so that's mm-hmm. where a lot of the um, uh, horse behavioralists and just mm-hmm. people in general that enjoy uh, horse enthusiasts do want to know more about behavior because it, it's, it's, it can be very subtle. And, uh, mm-hmm. But when you learn how to read it and interact and speak their language, if you will, it's, uh, it's one of the best feelings in the world. But I will also mention that onager behavior in general as far as grad students uh, or conservation scientists uh, community groups going out and studying their quote-unquote behavior there's not much of any of that I could Mm -hmm. find in literature so because they are such a rare species and uh, maybe some young budding um, behavioralist out there will want to do that because I would I would love to I, I I'm sure they have much different intricacies and horses do so but we need that more in the literature and there's just not a ton of literature out there and and that actually leads me into reproduction the same thing Mm -hmm. chris and i are both horse reproduction nerds it's what we studied in grad school partially and of course there's a ton of research on horse reproduction and we've learned a lot of really important things uh throughout Mm -hmm. the years with that uh, but with onager, with the Asiatic wild ass, there's just not as much done. Um, and so the information that I have is pretty generalized and we definitely need, I hope to see more improvements on understanding onager reproduction in the future. There are a couple groups in the United States, the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, I'll just call them Smithsonian from now on, that do a lot with onager reproduction and trying to learn about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well as the Wilds, which is a conservation park in Ohio that is on my bucket list. I've never been there. Jonathan's I know. Been there. You've I never know. been there. We need to go. I know. Yeah. So, uh, so I'll definitely be giving them a big shout out uh, because they were actually able to produce uh, the first Persian onagers via AI back in uh, 2013. And so mm-hmm. they, they wrote mm-hmm. the one reproduction paper on it that I, I basically could find. Know, yeah. uh, and so what we do know about onager reproduction in general is that they do seem to be seasonal, uh, which we know that our horses are long day seasonal breeders as well. And so in Asia, onager births are going to occur from April to September uh, with a lot of foals being born in June to July. And with that being said, breeding is going to be taking place around a similar time because their gestation period uh, is between 11 and 12 months, so almost a year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And during mating season, which once again is around May, June and there, uh, the stallions will fight each other for mating rights and female onagers, similar to domestic horses, uh, have an estrus that ranges from 22 to 28 days when you look into the literature. So Mm -hmm. it's once again, not as succinct and concise as our domestic horse. Uh, and their estrus period where they'll be receptive to the stallion, uh, during each cycle is only about three to five days. And when they do get in full, it is around a year, maybe a little shy of that, depending on resources. 
And onager foals um, are probably some of the cutest foals I've ever seen. I do love myself some zebra foals. Don't get me wrong. And of course, domestic foals. I guess I love all foals. Never mind. Scratch that. Come but on, let's so, go back oh, to they're so cute. Oh, they're Somali oh, wild ass oh, foals. Because right. part of our part of our research that you mm-hmm. had me doing, mm-hmm. watching them eat. At least there was babies on the ground for hours got, on end. Oh, and, you, and I'll put. I don't know. I, I'm going to put on social media one of the videos because I still have them of the foals and those ears. Now, I know they're not Asiatic wild asses, but they're closely related. Right. They're, they're close. They're close. It's, it's, yeah, it's enough yeah, to get yeah, people yeah. excited about wild asses mm-hmm. and the cuteness of the mm-hmm. foals for sure. Um, and the mm-hmm. onager, that foal does not disappoint regardless of what subspecies mm-hmm. it is. Ugh. Perfect perfection in my eyes. The female onager will lactate and nurse the foal anywhere from a year to a year and a half. So she's a very committed mother. And the young will hang out with her and they don't really become independent until they're about two years old. So the other thing too, when we talk about uh, generation intervals and getting these populations up, uh, onager in the wild is not going to be producing a full every year. It's just not mm-hmm. going to happen because of Mm-mm-mm. the care, the commitment, and the care that they put into the full on the ground. And so it's going to be a, it's going to be slower to build up their populations. And yes, while onagers do reach sexual maturity when they're about two years old, they typically don't mate until they're three to four. If that, especially stallions, sometimes it can be harder to establish a herd. So, so yes, it, it's going to take a lot longer for the population to rebound compared to other species that we've talked about on the podcast. I just want to give a shout out to Mandy Shook and co-authors for uh, the paper from 2013, where they discussed um, all of these points about the reproductive biology of endangered Persian onagers. So it was a helpful paper for me to to see what they've done. Um, and they, like I said, they have had um, at the Smithsonian Institute, they have had successful AI or artificial insemination, which is awesome if you're in the endangered species reproduction world. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a big deal when you get that done. And I remember going back to small wild ass, we were looking to do an embryo transfer and then that led me down the path. Okay. Well, where do I stick these embryos? Because we need each of the females to carry their own baby and that we stick them in horses. And then that started looking at genetics. And then I started thinking about mammoth cloning. <laughs> what are they going to do with those mammoth clones? Who are they going to stick them in? That's why they needed me because I was looking at immune genetics during pregnancy. Anyways, that's yeah, another they, podcast for a different day. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got to go to town box. on that one. I I've love your soapbox. Soapbox. They they are blowing millions of dollars. That they they need to be saving uh, Asian elephants, really, and there are Africans. Okay, conservation. We know these are endangered. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Patricia Moldman and the Species Survival Group. I've followed their work for over a decade now when I started looking into conservation in endangered equids, and they do a lot of great stuff uh, working to to save the Asiatic wild ass, the African wild ass, the Chevalsky's horse, uh, all of those endangered equids. This group is working very, very hard, working with China, working with Mongolia and other institutions around the world. So uh, when we look at population numbers, Angie said the Persian onager is is the most that's in critical need of conservation efforts that are ongoing. Their Turkinian kulan, 1,200, 1,300 of them in Turkmenistan. 
And that's and they're endangered. The Indian are near threatened. And again, I love oh, I love India. I just love what they're doing. I love that you know when you talked about doles and. Uh, I know you're you're chasing down some more interviews for conservation efforts there. Uh, so there's over 4,000 Indian wild asses, and and then like Andy said, the rest, the 20,000 plus, are are in Mongolia, where most of them are. So who's out there fighting for them? Yeah, well, Chris, I want to give a huge shout out first and foremost to the Smithsonian Institute and the Wilds for all the work that they've done. Ex situ, which means within conservation parks and zoos within the United States, uh, the Persian onager is in crisis. I mean, uh, in the in the wild, they're endangered with population ranging from three hundred to six hundred, depending on which count you look at. Not many animals, and then living in zoos under human care, about one hundred twenty six animals total, eighty nine in Europe, thirty three in the U.S., and four in Australia. Mm-hmm. So it's uh. It's not a lot, and but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these institutions that are working with them are putting their blood, sweat, and their tears into trying to increase their numbers to ensure the species survival. Yeah. If you're not already a fan or follow, follow them on social media, I highly recommend following the Wilds um, and or the Columbus Zoo and, of course, uh, the Smithsonian Institute and Zoo. And if you get a chance to go to D.C. and go to the Smithsonian Zoo, send some videos of the onagers that they have a display because that would make my day for sure. Mm-hmm. And lastly, Chris, I want to give a big shout out to the Wildlife Conservation Society. We talked about them a lot on the podcast. But specifically this week, uh, they do a lot of work in Mongolia with the Asiatic Wild Ass or the Mongolian Kulan. Uh, and their current research there and conservation efforts are trying to understand the impact of mining related infrastructure and how that movement and how that has changed the movement and distribution of the Kulan in Southern Gobi. So they work really hard on monitoring their movements. They've been doing this since 2013. So it's a very longstanding uh, project. And also part of this project is to gather data on traffic in this region and what's going on and where roads should be installed or not installed based on the Kulan uh, and their population. So a lot of great work that that group does and that they're also doing on Mongol in Mongolia. And you can find them at www.mongolia.wcs.org, uh, wildlife, Asiatic wild ass. Uh, who do I give money to? I just went to the wilds.org and we have not donated to them before. And, uh, you know, they like took I a talking of mine years ago. Okay, maybe I'll. Send it it, was, it wasn't my talk on Bo, yeah. old good old Bozo. He was so handsome. Yeah, well, they do such a. They, the Wilds does such a, a, a huge amount of conservation work, and it says your donation ensures that the highest quality animal care, conservation research, and educational opportunities are possible for wildlife and people. So I will be making a donation today to them. Uh, based on our uh, our Patreon followers. Uh, but conservation tip of the week, either share this episode or share a conservation story this week. Tag us, tag all creatures, and then uh, we'll turn around and, and put that on our stories on Instagram or Facebook. And, you know, just share, keep sharing these stories. It takes a village. It's going to take all of us listening to Institute Change in the world to make the world a better place for Asiatic wild asses and all those little creatures under them, the marmots, the, the other ones that we haven't talked about in that part of the world that 
the Asiatic wild asses can act as an umbrella species for them next to the Shavalsky's horse or all the other wonderful creatures in Asia. And like I said, I will get there in my life, Angie. I promise you. I got to get you here, you and John here first. I know I keep keep telling you every week. I can't wait to see you down here. But uh, we need to get up to Asia too and um, you know see some of these animals in the wild. Oh, absolutely, Chris. I look forward to it. It's uh, lots to do on this bucket list. And in the meantime, it's fun to fun to talk with you every week and get people excited about why they should care about onagers. And just Google a picture and I guarantee you'll be on board. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, take care. We've got a, we've got a big lineup coming. We've got a big lineup coming. Uh, we're going to be hitting it hard this year. So stay tuned for that. Yes, everyone. Thank you for listening, caring, and sharing. We really appreciate it. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.